The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, nothing in our lives is more important than our relationship with you. And so often, things come along that distract us and give rise to another focus of our attention. Sunday morning, often we sit down and we begin to look at your word. Other things intrude in our thinking. We pray that we might be able to focus and concentrate this morning on the things that we are studying, that we might have a greater appreciation and understanding for all that you have done in saving us. Father, now we pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would help us to understand these things, make them clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One announcement next Saturday is going to be either the end of a long process or maybe the end of the first stage of a long process, and that is that we are going to move from where we are in Baltic over to the new house here. So if any of you would like to help on Saturday morning, starting I think around, uh, let's say around 9 o'clock, or 9 to 9.30, uh, I'll rent a truck and we need to get all the furniture and boxes and everything else packed up and get that operation concluded. And then we can relax a little and go forward. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're studying the topic, the doctrine of justification by faith. This is still part of our study of the epistle to the Galatians. We came to Galatians 2.16, which begins, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. And that brought us to a very important word in the Greek called dikaiosune is the noun form. D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. The verb form is dikaiao. D-I-K-A-I-O-O. And its root meaning is to declare righteous. It's a legal term used in the court system of ancient Greece. It means to vindicate, to declare to be righteous, to make righteous. It also has the idea of justice. It incorporates both ideas. The idea of justice and the idea of righteousness. Righteousness is the standard. Justice is the application of the standard. So the word dikaiosune relates to the character of God. And I use the symbol plus R to indicate the perfect righteousness of God. This is the standard of God's integrity. Whatever the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God Performs the justice is the operation of the the of dikaiosune. God is perfect fairness, so the righteousness is the standard, and the justice of God is the outworking or the operation. And in terms of the integrity of God, there are three attributes of God that specifically relate to His integrity. Perfect righteousness, absolute justice, and love. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God provides, motivated by the love of God, and expressed through the grace of God. Remember, grace is not an attribute of God. Grace is the expression of all that God is. It is His policy toward mankind and the way He relates to mankind. Now, we are asking and answering some very important questions Questions, and I've tried to focus these questions so you can really understand the dynamics and the significance of all of this. The question we're answering is how is a person justified? How does a person come to be vindicated or declared to be righteous before a perfect God? 
To answer that question, we must focus on some secondary questions that deal with specific issues. One of those is, why do we need to be justified? If you're ever witnessing to somebody, they may say, well, why do you need to be saved? What's, what's the big deal? Why does a person need salvation? Why do we need to be justified before God? And that means or implies a further question, why are we condemned? Why is the human race condemned? So we are focusing more on that question right now. And we can subdivide that question into two further questions. Are we condemned for our own personal sins, or are we condemned for the sin of Adam? Now, that's a very important question. Is your condemnation from God based on your personal sins, or is, or is your condemnation based on the sin of Adam? So we have been focusing on that. Let me summarize in the first three or four points I have this morning, summarize where we have been. We have two relationships to Adam. Every single human being is related to Adam in one of two ways. The first way is a, in a representative way, which is called federal relationship. It has to do with the representation. He is our federal head. He is the representative. It was Adam who was designated by God to be the representative of the human race. It was Adam and not Eve. Eve's decision was significant, but it was significant for Eve and not for anyone else. It is Adam's sin that is significant because of his position as the federal head. Then we have a physical or biological relationship to Adam, and this is called a seminal relationship. He is our seminal head. We, I mean, we are in Adam seminally in seed form. The result is that Adam is both our representative and we were physically or biologically present in him at the fall. So we could chart this this way. In the top left here, I put Adam, and down here I put you. And there are two ways in which Adam is related to you. The first is a physical way. He is our, and this is also called seminal. And this is the genetic transmission of the sin nature. Down here on this lower curve, we have the representative relationship or federal head. And this is the imputation, deals with the imputation of Adam's original sin to you. The result is that we physically, we are born with a sin nature and therefore we are born spiritually dead. Secondly, we are born physically alive, uh, spiritually dead because we have a sin nature and God has imputed to that sin nature Adam's original sin, so we stand condemned, so we are born spiritually dead and physically alive. Point number two, when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam sinned, we sinned, and this is, results in our spiritual death, Ephesians 2.1. Notice Ephesians 2.1 says, But you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. It does not say that you were uh, conceived dead in your trespasses and sins. As we said a couple of weeks ago, the Bible continually states the parameters of human existence as being birth and death. You never find conception terminology related to the span of life. You always have it marked out or delineated as birth and death. But you were born dead in your trespasses and sin. And then we come to point three in terms of the introduction, and that is that Adam's original sin plus a sin nature equals spiritual death. Spiritual death has three aspects to it. Number one, it means that you are totally separated from God, from birth. From the moment of birth, you are totally separated from God. Point number two, you can therefore have no relationship, no fellowship, and no rapport with God. No relationship, no fellowship, and no rapport with God because you are born with a sin nature and the imputation of Adam's original sin. 
And point three, the initial, this is the initial act of divine justice in condemning us. So because you have a sin nature transmitted physically from Adam, from one generation to the next through the male, and you have the imputation of Adam's original sin to the sin nature, that is the basis for condemnation from the justice of God. So every single human being is born physically alive and spiritually dead and condemned by the justice of God. So we go back to our little uh, chart here. Three aspects of divine integrity, perfect righteousness, absolute justice, and love. What the righteousness of God rejects, and the righteousness of God rejects every single human being at the point of birth because of the sin nature and Adam's original sin, they lack righteousness. So this is minus R. They have no righteousness. No matter how good you are, no matter how wonderful you are, no matter how moral you are, we cannot measure up to the absolute perfect righteousness of God. This is very important to understand this. We can look at other human beings and, and in comparison one person to another, we may have a tremendous amount of morality and righteousness. So it's also termed relative righteousness. But our righteousness always falls short of what God demands. In fact, in Isaiah 65.6 it says, uh, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It doesn't say all our unrighteousness. It says all our righteousness. That means all our good deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of God. So righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God rejects man, and the justice of God therefore condemns man. But the love of God provides a solution. And this is the solution in terms of justification and why we are studying this. Now, it was Adam's sin, not the woman's, that was at issue. This is clear from 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14, where we read, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Eve is taken from the side of Adam so that she is derived from him. He is the head of every single human being. 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived. So the Bible makes a distinction between Eve's sin, which is related to deception, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. So her sin is a sin as a result of deception, but his sin is one of full knowledge. So it's Adam's sin that is the issue. It is the the uh, male of the species, therefore, the male who transmits the sin nature. And we're going to study how that takes place in a few minutes. So, point number four, the basis for our condemnation is then Adam's original sin and not our personal sin. So we have to ask the question, if Adam's original sin, this is our conclusion... Point number four to this point, that it is Adam's original sin that is the basis for the condemnation of the human race. So then we have to ask, how is the sin nature perpetuated? If Adam sinned, what has that to do with me, you might ask? Is this really fair of God to condemn me on the basis of the decision of somebody else? Shouldn't I be condemned on the basis of my own? Well, this is the brilliance of the justice of God. We could be condemned for either Adam's original sin, we'll get, put the options up here and deal with this in a very logical manner, either Adam's original sin or we could be condemned for our own personal sins. If we are condemned for our own personal sins, then the issue is that you do not become condemned until you sin. But see, you have a sin nature. You're born with a sin nature. We are condemned before we ever possess or commit any personal sins. By not imputing, as we shall see, by not imputing our personal sins to us, but imputing them rather to the cross, then our personal sins are never an issue. Period. Now, some of you may be more moral. You may be a little more self-righteous. You may have a trend in your sin nature 
towards asceticism or self-righteousness or something of that nature, and you may look askance at one of your fellow believers who has a trend towards antinomianism, and you may just be shocked at all the things they do, and it may seem that they get away with this sin. But realize, their personal sins are not the issue. Your personal sins are not the issue. The issue and the basis for condemnation, then, is Adam's original sin. By removing the personal sins from the basis of condemnation, the focus then remains on what Adam did, and it fits into the entire framework of divine justice in a very uh, fascinating and significant manner. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's back up and define. This is point five this morning. Define the sin nature. The instant Adam sinned, he was corrupted. He acquired a corrupt nature that penetrated every facet of his being, both physically and spiritually. The instant he sinned, he died spiritually. And he acquired at that instant what we call a sin nature. Now, the sin nature is described in the scriptures with the terms old man in Ephesians 4.22 in the King James Version. It's described as the flesh in Romans 8, 3 through 4, and it's described as the principle of sin in Romans 7, 8 through 20. Terms that are used to describe the sin nature are the bot- this body of sin in Romans 6, uh, flesh. These terms relate it to its material component. So from that, in defining the sin nature, we can say that it is an integral part of every human being that resides in the cell structure of the human body. This is its command post. This is the base from which the sin nature operates. It is material, and it has a material component. It also has an immaterial component, which we'll look at in a minute, but it has primarily a material component. Here's a diagram of the sin nature. The sin nature is composed of an area of weakness down here at the bottom where it produces personal sins. This this area of weakness is where you are prone or weak to temptation, where you easily succumb to temptation and sin. You commit sin in one of three categories. Overt sins, which are sins such as murder, uh, violence, rape, thievery, These are overt sins. Then there are sins of the tongue, which are gossip, slander, maligning, lying, false witness. Those are sins of the tongue. And then there are the most devastating sins of all, which are the mental attitude sins. Mental attitude sins are based in arrogance and and emotional sins. There are sins such as anger, hatred, jealousy, bitterness. All of these are sins which underlie sins of the tongue and overt sins. And these are the most devastating. You always find in some churches people who focus on the fact that they can become perfect or do away with, uh, the, uh, with sin, and they always tend to focus on overt sins. And they rarely ever look at those underlying mental attitude sins which tend to so uh, captivate them. So we have to be careful that when we look at personal sins to realize there are the sins of the tongue and mental attitude sins are among the worst. Once temptation always derives from the sin nature, but the sin nature itself does not produce the sin. Sin is produced when your volition acquiesces to the temptation that begins from here. Sin nature offers the temptation. Your volition responds. Then you're out of fellowship. You're under the control of sin nature. And any good that you do after that is a production of, of the sin nature. And you can produce all kinds of good deeds. For example, let's say in your lust pattern you have a trend towards antinomianism and licentiousness and lasciviousness. So you're offered temptation and you give in to some sort of, all of a sudden, to some sort of sexual sin and it shocks you. Now you feel guilty. So you're going to do something to impress God with how sorry you are. Rather than just going to 1 John 1, 9 and confessing or admitting your sin to God, you are now going to impress God with your sorrow. So you're up here in Operation Human Good. You're going to assuage your guilt complex by uh, showing God penance. You're going to make sure you're at church 
at Bible class the next three or four times. You're going to read your Bible every day. You're going to pray every day and give a lot of money to the church. You're really going to get in line. But that's all just human good because you're out of fellowship. And so your activities, while they may look very good to a lot of other believers, and it may look like, boy, you've finally gotten straight and you're just doing doing wonders in your spiritual life, it's all human good and it's all wood, hay, and stubble. So human good then becomes an, is an area of strength, but it's just, uh, it may be good, but it's temporal good, it's carnality, and it is no different from the good produced by the, by the unbeliever. It's a production of the sin nature. Every believer has certain trends. Some of us have trends one way in some areas and maybe in two or three areas in the other direction. The two trends are asceticism and legalism. And when you operate on that trend, you end up in moral degeneracy. And that's where the Pharisees were in the New Testament. They're very, very moral. But Jesus said, you are like whitewashed sepulchers. You're clean on the outside, but dead men's bones on the inside. And that's where really a lot of Christians are in their life. They're more, very moral. They're convinced their morality is equivalent to spirituality. But they're, they're legalistic, and they are in moral degeneracy. Then there's immoral degeneracy, which most people clearly understand, that you can go into all sorts of antinomian activity and licentiousness and lasciviousness and end up in immoral degeneracy. Well, that's a basic definition of the sin nature. We'll move on to point number six. Point number six is that the sin nature is both material and immaterial. The material part resides in the cell structure of the body, and the immaterial part is the function of the trends towards um, the trends towards asceticism and legalism and antinomianism. So those trends are the result of Adam's sin and the focus of the sin nature. Point number seven deals with the immaterial part. Immaterially, the sin nature has specific, this is the specific trend towards sin, which you are most susceptible to. It's your area of weakness. causes you to produce all categories of sin, uh, uh, mental sins, verbal sins, and overt sins in your area of weakness. So you have a material function, point six, point seven, your immaterial function. Now, point number eight, let's develop this a little more. How does this take place? Well, we have to understand a little basic biology here. In biology, the fundamental element is is the cell, the human cell. Now, you can have all kinds of different cells. You can have blood cells, brain cells, muscle cells fat cells, all kinds of cells. When a cell replicates, it's through a process called mitosis. This is M-I-T-O-S-I-S. Mitosis. Every cell is comprised of 46 chromosomes. When a cell uh, replicates through mitosis, It goes from one cell with 46 to two cells, each having 46 chromosomes. However, the one category of cell that differs from this are the reproductive cells. Reproductive cells reproduce through a process called meiosis. Now, let's look at the male first. Through meiosis, you have the male sperm cell, which has 46 chromosomes. Through meiosis, M-E-I-O-S-I-S, this divides then to 23 chromosomes in each. This isn't a sperm. This is just your basic cell here. And then this divides. And now you have two different sperm with 23 chromosomes each. Each is fully contaminated with the sin nature because you have all 46 chromosomes are still present. Now, in the female, you have an egg cell. The egg cell, once it is, once ovulation takes place, at that point it has 46 chromosomes. Through meiosis, it goes through a couple of different stages where it throws off what's called polar bodies. 
these polar bodies are non-functional elements where the, cell, the egg cell is purifying itself, and it throws off these 23 chromosomes in meiosis in these, this uh, contaminated material called a polar body, which is non-functional. The result is you now have an egg cell with 23 chromosomes. At conception, the 23 purified chromosomes, which are minus a sin nature, because the sin nature aspect, the contamination and corruption has been thrown off through polar body so that the the egg now is purified, has no sin nature, it's minus a sin nature. At conception, it's combined with the 23 chromosomes of the sperm, which are contaminated by a sin nature. It passes down through the male. And now you have a fertilized egg that has 46 chromosomes. Now here's just an interesting side point. At that point, you have one cell. Then it goes to two cells. Then it goes to four cells. And that goes then to eight cells. Now, I'm doing this for a purpose just as a side point. There are those, and I understand this is a controversial doctrine and difficult for some people to hold, but the question is when does full human life begin? Does it begin at conception or does it begin at birth? We have seen that in the history of of, uh, Christianity there have been two basic views. The first is traditionism. Traditionism says that the sin nature is material. It is passed on through, uh, through the semen and is basically material and so that the soul is present from conception on. And we have also seen that that was termed heretical from the Middle Ages because it reduces man to two material components and reduces the soul to a material component. Then there is the creationist view. That is that God creates each human soul individually and then imparts that to physical or biological life. So you have to distinguish between biological life and soul life. And it is the union of biological life with soul life that then produces full human life. So the issue is, when does God impart or impute soul life to biological life? Well, those who say that it takes place at conception have a basic problem. And that is this, something to think about. They would say that at conception, at this point, God has imputed soul life. Let's assume that's true. So there's one soul here imputed to this particular egg. Duplication, duplication to four cells, then to eight cells. Then there's something happens and there's a division. Now you have four cells here, four cells here, two different sets of biological life. Got two souls? Can't have two souls. You can't split a soul. This is what happens when twins are born. This gives you a biological rationale, the basic difficulty of soul life being imputed at conception. Because what you're forced to say is in the case of multiple births is that the soul split as well as the physical split. And that's not possible. So you have the split take place and you have the development within the womb of biological life and God's intimate involvement with that according to Psalm 139. And then at birth, God with breathes the breath of lives, the Hebrew is neshama, into uh, the biological life. And at the moment of birth, you have uh, full biological life, physically alive but spiritually dead. Now, what happens, let's back up, get back on track here. What happens in this process, or what happened in this process in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, is that Mary ovulated, and through the process of meiosis and throwing off the polar bodies to purify that egg cell, she's left with one purified egg cell comprised of 23 chromosomes, no sin nature. Then God the Holy Spirit miraculously fertilizes that egg and provides 23 perfect chromosomes untainted by 
the sin nature, the corrupt sin nature inherited from Adam, so that the result is that Jesus Christ is born physically alive and spiritually alive. Because there is no sin nature and therefore no imputation of Adam's original sin. The combination of Mary's perfect 23 chromosomes plus the 23 chromosomes miraculously provided by God the Holy Spirit resulted in the uh, unique virgin conception of the uh, biological life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the humanity uh, base for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's important and will become important to understand what takes place in the operation of <clears throat> the imputation of our sins to the impeccable Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to point nine, that it is Adam's original sin, again, repeating the conclusion, it's Adam's original sin that's the basis for our condemnation. And I want to read a quote to you from Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology, Volume 2, page 301. This is the volume on anthropology and homardiology. Now, for those of you who don't know, Lewis Berry Chafer was a very well-known theologian of the earlier part of this century. He is the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary and wrote a magnificent eight-volume systematic theology, which is one of the best expositions of theology that's ever been published. And in his section on imputed sin, he makes the following observation in relationship to our passage. We're looking at Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This is what Chafer says about that last sentence. And so death passed, or spread through, all men, for that all have sinned. Since the aorist tense is used in the last clause, that's the verb, all have sinned, since the aorist tense is used in the last clause, and thus a single historical act completed in the past is indicated, the phrase, all have sinned, is better rendered, all sinned. The effort of language at this point is to say that each member dies physically because of his own part in Adam's sin. Since one complete single historical act is in view, the words all sin cannot refer to a nature which results from the, that act, nor can it refer to personal sins of many individuals. It is not that man became sinful. The assertion is that all sinned at one time and under the same circumstances. See, that's what I'm trying to communicate. At the moment that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you sinned. We all sinned when Adam sinned. He goes on to quote another well-known 19th century theologian by the name of Dr. Philip Schaff in the International Revision Commentary, who said, A single historical act is meant, namely the past event of Adam's fall, which was at the same time virtually the fall of the human race as represented by him, federal headship, and germinally contained in him, seminal relationship. So the point is that when we come to the end of 512, because all sinned, the thrust of the aorist tense in that verb is that, that when Adam sinned, we all sinned, so that Point nine, our conclusion, it is Adam's original sin that is the basis for our condemnation. Point ten, the justice of God, therefore, condemns us because of Adam's original sin, not our personal sins. Condemnation is prior to the commitment of any personal sin. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born condemned, and that occurs before any of us commit any single sin. So that wonderful, cooing infant that you have is a totally depraved sinner. And it is your responsibility as a parent to teach him to control that sin nature. 
He can control it as an unbeliever through self, a certain level of self-discipline and establishment truth, but he can only come to truly control it as a believer under the filling of the Holy Spirit and the application of doctrine. That's why it is so important for parents to discipline and train their kids. It has a spiritual function. If you do not discipline your kids, then you are helping them to let their sin nature run rampant. That's the difference. Point number ten, the justice of God condemns us because of Adam's original sin, not our personal sins. We are condemned prior to the commitment of any personal sin. So that means point eleven, a very fundamental point. Remember, we sin as a result of spiritual death. So we sin personally because we have a sin nature. We sin because we're sinners. We do not... We are not sinners because we sin. We do not have a sin nature because we sin personally. We sin because we have a sin nature. We are born that way. Okay, let's move on to verse 13, Romans 5:13. Paul says, "For until the law, sin was in the world." Now, what kind of sin is this? This could be Adam's original sin, this could be a personal sin. This, or it could be the sin nature. Whenever you have the, the Greek word hamartia, it can mean one of three things. This is the hamartia. This is the Greek word for sin. H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, which is where we get our English word hamartiology. Hamartiology means the study of sin. It's the theological discipline which studies everything the Bible has to say about the topic of sin. From the root hamartia, meaning sin, meaning to miss the mark, to go off course. Now, hamartia can refer to Adam's original sin, it can refer to the sin nature, or it can refer to personal sin. Context tells. For until the law, sin was in the world. And the subject here is personal sin. For until the law, personal sin was in the world, but personal sin is not imputed when there is no law. There are four things. This is point number 12 this morning. And there are four things that Paul says about this subject here. Number one, we must understand that the Mosaic law came into existence some 2,000 plus years after Adam's fall. The Mosaic Law defined human freedom, morality, and personal sin. There's a lot to say about sin in the Mosaic Law, and it is the first codification of personal sin and development of what is involved in personal sin. So the Mosaic Law defines human freedom, morality, and personal sin. Secondly, under point 12, the Mosaic Law thus reveals man's condemnation. But it's 2,000 years later. It reveals his condemnation, but it's not the basis for his condemnation. So many people think that it's the Ten Commandments that provide the basis for man's condemnation. The the Ten Commandments don't make anything in the Ten Commandments a sin. Those things were sins for 2,000 years till the Mosaic Law was given. The Mosaic Law is not the first time that they become sins. They've been sins for 2,000 plus years. (coughs) Excuse me. So the Mosaic Law reveals man's condemnation and gives more development to it in terms of the development of revelation but it's not the basis for it, which leads to the third sub-point under point 12, that man was completely condemned for 2,000 years, 2,000 plus years, before the giving of the Mosaic Law. Man had been... What was the basis for that condemnation? The basis for that condemnation was therefore not personal sin. Personal sin was in the world, but it says personal sin was not imputed when there is no law, when there is no definition of personal sin. So what then could have been the basis for condemnation? If it wasn't personal sin, it must have been Adam's original sin, not personal sin because it had not been clearly defined 
at that point. Point Subpoint number four. So personal sins are not imputed to man for condemnation for those 2,000 years because there was no precise definition and the issue is therefore Adam's original sin. Well, let's look at, under point 13, let's look at a couple of other scriptures to document this. Turn over two books to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting, that's not imputing, their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, the important phrase I want to focus on there is not counting their trespasses against them. So our trespasses, our personal sins, according to 2 Corinthians 5.19, our personal sins are not the issue. They are not imputed to us. Now turn with me back to Romans chapter 4, verse 8. Romans chapter 4, verse 8. This is a quotation from Psalm 32.2. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And the word for taking into account is our word legizomai, which means to impute. Blessed is the man to whom God does not impute his sins. So, once again, Romans 5, uh, Romans 4.8 Blessed is the man who does not have his personal sins imputed to him. Why is he blessed? Because those personal sins are not imputed to you as the basis for your condemnation. They are imputed to Jesus Christ at the cross. At the cross, Jesus Christ has all of our sins, personal sins, imputed to him as well as Adam's original sin so that all sin is paid for completely by Christ on the cross. Now, this is so important to understand basic concepts of salvation related to eternal security and all that takes place at the moment of salvation because it throws the emphasis away from sin. How many times do you hear some evangelist or some preacher preach for hours on how sinful you are and that you need to deal with all the sin in your life. The subtext is that the issue is personal sin. But the Scripture says the issue is not your personal sin. That's not the basis for condemnation. The basis for condemnation is Adam's original sin. And we all stand equally condemned by Adam's original sin. Therefore, this person over here, who perhaps has uh, trends towards morality or legalism, and says, oh, look at my life, I have very few sins in it. And this person over here, who's just your, your rank rebel, who gives in to every impulse of the flesh, and is a womanizer, and alcoholic, and drug addict, and everything else, he has uh, many more personal sins, but they're equally condemned. So this self-righteous person has no right to say, well, my condemnation's not as bad as yours, and he can't look down his nose at anybody else, Because we all stand equally condemned for the same thing, and that is Adam's original sin. And whether you commit uh, 10 billion sins or 1 billion sins as personal sins, the issue and basis for condemnation is the same. So nobody can look at themselves in arrogance and think they have a better position than, than anyone else. And all these personal sins, whether they're 10 billion or 1 billion, were all imputed, every single one of them, were imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross and paid for by Him at that point. Now, this brings us to a conclusion of our study of the imputation of Adam's original sin. And that is that we are not condemned for personal sins, but Adam's original Adam's original sin. Now, let's go back a little bit. 
We said as we began this study on imputation that there were two categories of imputation. There are real imputations and there are judicial imputations. A real imputation is when one thing is imputed to its object and there is correspondence or similarity between the two. For example, Adam's original sin is imputed to the sin nature. It was Adam's original sin that resulted in the acquisition of the sin nature. There is similarity between the two, and so that is a real imputation. In a judicial imputation, there is no affinity or similarity or correspondence between what is imputed and the object. So that when Jesus Christ is perfect righteousness and our sins are imputed to him, there's no similarity. There's no home here. So it's not a real imputation. It is what's called a judicial imputation. And this takes us back to the fact that the Bible and all of creation operates under the rule of law. There is an absolute standard. That is the righteousness of God. That is the standard of God's uh, integrity. And there is the justice of God, which is the operation of divine integrity. And the absolute standard is the perfect righteousness of God, and he thus provides a perfect solution to the sin problem by judicially imputing the, all of our sins to Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's go back to the passage we're looking at in Romans chapter 5. We've looked at verse 13, now let's go on to verse 14. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. That's the conclusion. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even though sin had not been instantiated in the Mosaic Law, death still reigned because the issue was Adam's original sin, not personal sin. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, the word type is a transliteration of the Greek word tupos, T-U-P-O-S which means an example. So there are certain comparisons between Adam, who is the, called the first Adam, and Jesus Christ, who is called the second Adam. Adam was created perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ was born perfect, minus the sin nature. He's born spirit, physically alive and spiritually alive. The first Adam uh, chose to sin the second Adam chose not to sin. That's the impeccability of Jesus Christ, even under temptation. He chose not to sin. The first Adam is the source of corruption for the entire human race. And the second Adam, as our substitute on the cross, is the source of spiritual life and re eternal life for the human race, the source of salvation. So Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ are used in Scripture as comparison and contrast. Adam is the type. Christ is the antitype. Verse 15, But the free gift... Now, what is the free gift? The free gift is salvation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory... Of our, but the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is free. How many people do not understand the concept of free? Free is grace in action. Free means you do nothing to earn it or deserve it. Grace means that you just simply do it. God does all the work and you simply accept it. And that's it. It is a free gift. It's not a gift because it's Christmas. It's not a gift because it's your birthday. It's not a gift for some other special occasion or because you've done something. It is just coming up and giving you something. Recently, I was in a conversation with some friends of mine, and we were discussing someone we all know and respect. 
And one guy was telling the story about how at, at, at one point he was, uh, had come down and was speaking at this individual's church, and he gave him a rather large amount of money. And he really didn't want to take it. He said, I have no basis for that. I, I haven't done anything for that. You don't need to give me anything. I, you know, I, I'm just fine. He says, when you learn to accept a gift freely, then you will understand grace and have grace orientation. And that is so hard for many people to understand. They are very comfortable, perhaps, doing something for somebody else. But when somebody does something for them at no charge and wanting and desiring and refusing to take anything in return, many people are uncomfortable with that. Because everything else we do in life, there is a tit for tat. There is, we do this in order to earn that. But when you learn to accept something from somebody else, free gratis, where you are, do nothing in return and are expected to do nothing in return, then you will begin to understand grace and grace orientation. Salvation is a free gift. You do nothing to earn it or deserve it. It is yours freely at the moment of salvation. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. See, that's our point again. It is Adam's original sin that caused the death of the many. In Adam's fall, how did the old Puritan rhyme go? In Adam's fall, we sinned all. By the transgression of the one, the many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. What are the many transgressions here? The many transgressions equals personal sins. The personal sins of the entire human race then are imputed or legally counted as the responsibility of the one man, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And at the cross, between 12 noon and 3 in the afternoon, when darkness covered the face of the earth, God the Father imputed every single sin of the human race to His Son. Every one. All the sins of Hitler, all the sins of the Ayatollah Khomeini, all the sins of Saddam Hussein, all the sins of Jeffrey Dahmer, all the sins of every mass murderer that ever, ever existed on the earth. Their sins were all paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. He did not refuse payment for anyone's sin or for any particular sin. He paid the penalty for every single sin. And if the penalty has been paid, then that means that sin, those sins are no longer the issue. What's the issue? The issue is whether you accept or reject Jesus Christ. The issue is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The issue is are you willing to accept this payment on your behalf? And just like someone who gives you a free gift of $5,000 and you say, wait a minute, I have to do something for that. If that's your attitude, you haven't accepted it. That's the attitude of so many people. Wait a minute, I have to do something to make sure I'm worthy of this gift. That's faith plus. And faith plus anything we saw in Galatians 1.6 equals nothing. Faith plus anything. If you add X to faith, you destroy faith. It's no longer a free gift. Works have entered in and works totally destroy the aspect of grace. For if by the transgression of the one death reign through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. What is that? The gift of righteousness. And so we have the first judicial imputation is the imputation of all of our sins to Jesus Christ. This is the issue at the end of verse 16. I got ahead of myself there. But on the one hand, the free gift arose from transgressions resulting in justification. When all of our transgressions are imputed to Christ, it results in what? Justification. 
then we have that explained again further in verse 17. By analogy, if by the transgression of the one, that is by the transgression of Adam, death reigned through the one, spiritual death to every member of the human race is the penalty for sin, physical death is one of its consequences, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, that is simply accepting it by faith alone in Christ alone, receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. And this brings us to our second judicial imputation, which is the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness to the believer. At the point of salvation, here you are. You have a sin nature, and you are minus R. You lack all righteousness. And what this is telling you is at the moment of your salvation, when you accept that free gift from God of salvation, then God imputes to you legally the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is now yours. When God looks at you, here's God, perfect righteousness and justice. When God looks at you, the righteousness of God looks at you, He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the righteousness of what the righteousness of God accepts, that's His standard, and you now meet His standard, not because of anything that you've done, because that's how you are experientially. What the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. So the justice of God blesses you at that point by imputing to you eternal life. First of all, God, the Holy Spirit, creates a human spirit, and then God the Father imputes eternal life to it. That's another real imputation because there's affinity between eternal life and the human spirit, but we're not going to go into that doctrine of imputation. We want to focus on just the two judicial imputations as they relate to justification. But the perfect righteousness of God accepts you because you now possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the justice of God blesses you and imputes eternal life to the human spirit. Now, all of that takes place in a moment in time. We break it down in order to understand the dynamics and how each piece fits together. But it happens simultaneously. You express faith alone in Christ alone, and at that moment, all these things take place. They're not experiential. That means you don't feel anything. If you feel bad if you have the flu and you're running a 105-degree fever before you're saved, you're still going to feel lousy and miserable after you're, after you're saved. If you're tired and you've been working 80-hour weeks, you're still going to be tired and exhausted afterwards. It's not experiential. The only way you learn about this is then by going to the Word of God and studying the Word of God, and then God tells you all that He has done for you at that moment of salvation. To say that you can lose your salvation is to say that all of this is then reversible, which is absurd. God makes you a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. God makes you a new creature in Christ at that moment of salvation. So let's go back to our passage in Galatians chapter 2 and plug this into what we are studying there. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing, and here we have a present active participle of the Greek word gnosko, G-I-N-O-S-K-O. Present active participle, and it lacks the article, which means it's adverbial and is an adverbial participle of cause. So it should be translated, nevertheless, remember he's talking to Peter. This is Paul's rebuke of Peter. He's straightening out Peter's legalism. And he says, nevertheless, because we know something, we know a principle, we know that a man is not justified by works of the law. Why? If a man were to be justified by the works of the law, here's 
2,000 plus years of history. Adam is here. Moses is here. If justification comes by the works of the law, then nobody could be justified until approximately 1440 B.C. But we know that Abraham was declared righteous by God in Genesis, I believe it's Genesis 15, verse 7, and God imputed it to Abraham as righteousness. And that is before the law. So, is one Jew to another who understands the Old Testament and who understands the dynamics of what took place in Abraham's life. Paul says to Peter, nevertheless, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say, but through faith in Christ Jesus and accepting His Lordship. It doesn't say, but through faith in the Lord Jesus and being baptized. It doesn't say, but through faith in Christ Jesus and witnessing to five people a day, memorizing three scriptures every week, reading your Bible and going to prayer meeting. doesn't even say, but through, I would like for it to say, but through faith in Christ Jesus and showing up at Bible class every week. But it doesn't even say that. It just says, but through faith in Christ Jesus. It is faith alone in Christ alone. Even we, that is, he's including Peter and himself, we have believed in the past with results that go on into the future. We have believed in Christ Jesus. You see, faith is non-meritorious. That means there's no merit in faith. Merit is in the object. What is believed? And the object is Jesus Christ. He did all the work. He provides all the merit. It is His perfect righteousness that is the basis for our justification. It's not our faith. We are not saved because we believe. The Scripture never says that. The scripture, in fact, the Greek is a very is very precise, and in Greek, if you use the phrase dia, the preposition dia, plus the accusative, then that's how you express cause. But in Ephesians two eight nine says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith," and that is the preposition dia plus the genitive, and that indicates means, not cause. What's the cause of our of our salvation? It's the work of Christ on the cross. Faith is non-meritorious and we simply apply Christ's work on the cross to ourselves by faith alone in Christ alone. But through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. He is the object of our faith. That for the purpose clause, he now introduces a perfect clause that we might be justified... And it's a here we have a uh, the the uh, <clears throat> verb indicates potential because it's based on individual volition that you must use your volition to make a decision to believe to accept Jesus Christ or to reject Christ. So that's why it's stated this way that we might believe that I mean that we might be justified or declared to be righteous. By, by faith, notice it's means again, by means of faith in Christ. He really wants to make it clear in these verses that it is faith in Christ, not the works of the law. It is not external works of obedience, but the internal operation of faith on the work of Jesus Christ. Not what we do, but what He did. That's the issue. Either all or nothing. that we might be justified or declared to be righteous. And how are we declared to be righteous? At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, here we are, we're minus R, God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and imputes that to us. And then He looks at the perfect righteousness we now possess and He declares us to be justified. At that moment, we are justified. Vindicated. We were condemned because of Adam's original sin, but Adam's original sin was paid for at the cross. All our personal sins are paid for on the cross. Now we have 
uh, perfect righteousness credited to our account, and so that is the basis for our vindication. We might be vindicated or declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone and not by the works of the law since by the works of the law shall no flesh be declared righteous. In other words, anything you do is not the issue and if you rely on works in any way, shape, or form, you will never be declared righteous because it's only faith alone in Christ alone that gets you plus R. And it's only the perfect righteousness of Christ that that can receive the sentence from the justice of God of legally righteous. So we'll close there and come back to Galatians 2.17 next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity this morning to study this so important doctrine of justification, to understand that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's nothing on our behalf, nothing on our part that has caused You to save us. It is totally and absolutely a result of Your own integrity. Your righteousness and Your justice devised a way motivated by Your love and expressed in Your grace to provide this perfect salvation for us. And Father, we know that it is not on the basis of works which we have done, but according to Your mercy, You have saved us. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never put their faith alone in Christ alone, that this would be their opportunity to do so. All they have to do is pray silently in the privacy of their own soul. Father, I accept the free gift of Jesus Christ as my Savior. Father, I pray that you would help us to continue to think about these things and as they sift through our minds that God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us that we might apply them and use this in conversations we have and as we witness to unbelievers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.